Good to see you all this morning. Happy second Sunday of Advent. Um, Josh, one of the pastors, has been mentioned. And uh, I just, I love what God is doing here in, in this church family. Uh, now, now two churches becoming one. And uh, it's just such a, a, a great picture of God bringing unity, God bringing peace, God bringing um, a new thing out of an old thing. And, and so we exist our purpose here at Tallgrass of the Well is to welcome everyone into community, into God's family, and uh, help, help everyone discover and follow the way of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing here together. If you are a new guest, I would love to just say hi to you. Uh, I'll be at the welcome table at the end. We have a gift for you, actually, too, if you're a new guest with us, just to say thank you for uh, worshiping with us this morning. So uh, as I said, we're in the second Sunday of Advent. Today's theme is going to be peace, peace on earth. And uh, it's interesting, about a year ago, Ben and I were with a, a mutual acquaintance, he's a church consultant, does some coaching, and he uh, clued us in on something called the Hedonometer, the Hedonometer. Uh, it's connected to this project where in the early days of Twitter, so the, the late 2000s, uh, this research group uh, got permission to access Twitter's data on who's posting in English. So it's mostly you know, people in, in North America, and they plotted uh, a, a portion of the 500 million messages of de- a day over the last you know, 12, 15 years. And so there's actually a graph that you can go online and you can look at this. This graph is really interesting. Let me kind of nerd out just for a second. Jesus loves nerds, okay? So we're gonna nerd out for just a second. If you look at this thing, you can go online, just uh, hedonometer.org. Uh, it plots the highs and lows collectively of our nation. And so the, the low points are various uh, tragedies, accidents, um, natural disasters, death of, of celebrity, uh, things like that. And so, so as, as the year go, years go on, there's, there's highs and there's lows. The peaks every year, there's, there's two, uh, maybe three peaks at the end of the year. You could probably guess that it's Thanksgiving and then Christmas is way up there and then New Year's Eve is up there. And so uh, our, our culture is in this kind of cycle that we, they actually have data that they can plot those points to see where people are experiencing their low lows if they're on Twitter and you're asking, who in their right mind is on Twitter anyway? Well, I'm on Twitter, so anyway. So this is true. You could, you could see the trend lines here and how over the years there are higher highs and lower lows, and it goes up and down and up and down, and then towards the very uh, far right, if you're looking at this from your perspective, uh, graph, there, the pandemic hits, and it's like everything gets frazzled and way high and way down and lots of downs and, and whatnot. But there's this kind of trajectory where things are trending back upwards. The highs aren't quite as high. Christmas, uh, the celebration of Christmas over the past several years, even before the pandemic, isn't quite as high as it was in 2009. Uh, but the, and the lows uh, are quite lower. So if you see the low lows, the, the pandemic, the, the um, protests, and the storming of the Capitol this year, those are the, the most recent lows of the lows. And I think even if you're not on Twitter, I think you can resonate with this, is that our culture really uh, follows some similar trend lines, whether you're on Twitter or not, and 
it seems to be that, that we are kind of manic depressive as a, as a society. There are a few really high points at the end of the year, and, and that's of course not universal for everyone everywhere, but then almost collectively, almost universally, the low points are really low, and we really feel that. And my, my concern that we're in Advent, we look at this and go, well, at least people are celebrating, at least they're happy, you know, at least there's some kind of collective, like, uh, a peak that we're experiencing as a culture. And yet, we can discern from this how fickle those specific feelings really can be. So we're talking about, like, within the span of six weeks, we're as happy as we're going to be for the entire year. That's, that's not super encouraging, <laughs> So my concern is, even though we're in this Advent season, even though people are in that Christmas cheer, that, that we're really chasing a feeling that is not sustainable. It's actually quite fickle. Like, so if we take away from this, like the happiest I may feel over the next 12 months, I'm about to experience it and then that's it. Oh man, that's really hard to sit with and to sit in. And yet, I don't think that has to be true. If we have the right expectations, for what Advent is and how we're supposed to engage with it, sit with Advent, sit in the, the narrative birth story of Jesus and the hope that is still to come, I think there's actually a more sustaining peace than chasing Christmas cheer or holiday joy or what have you. And, and you know, I love my peppermint mocha you know, just as much as you all, like I, I love that, that we are just out of pumpkin spice latte season. I, that's okay. I'm a little basic. I don't mind. I, I don't mind that at all. And yet I think in the midst of that, just looking forward to what drink Starbucks is going to put out or what deals we're going to find on Black Friday on Amazon. Or I guess that would be Cyber Monday. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. There's something here for us if we could really open ourselves up to maybe being a little disillusioned by how we've engaged Christmas time in the past. Because I feel like, I feel like over the next few weeks, we're in a little bit deconstructive Christmas mode. Like, like uh, we were talking in our pastor meeting how uh, the manger scene, and, and maybe Dave is gonna preach on this next week, I don't, I don't know, but uh, the manger scene isn't this, this room, at the, no room at the end, and so he, they get kicked out. I'll let him go into that, but you kind of like, the scales fall off your eyes. Like the Christmas story, maybe the folksiness of it isn't actually what happened to all that degree. I think there's something there for us where we, where we can step into the truth of what God has for us if we get away from this kind of cultural Christianity, churchianity maybe, and step into the meaning of Advent for us and for all time. So with that, that's, that's a little bit of, a, of a, a, a preface of this next quote. Fleming Rutledge, who is just a tremendous theologian, she writes in her, her book, Advent, in the church, this is the season of Advent. It's superficially understood, not, not in a negative way, it's just most commonly understood, as a time to get ready for Christmas. But in truth, it's, a, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark. That's a phenomenal phrase right there. Advent begins in the dark and moves towards the light. 
but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. So that is a marvelous but quite sobering quote. It grabs our attention and simply says, Advent is for the cynics and the skeptics, those who are hanging on to a thread of hope, those who are disillusioned, those who have lost their grasp of what's really, maybe truly real. Advent is for those who are venturing through the valley of the shadow of death. Advent is for those with unanswered prayers and unfulfilled dreams. Advent is for you and Advent is for me. Ancient Israel lived in this state of disillusionment, of losing their hope, of trying to, to, to grasp what God is saying and what he is doing when he's so quiet right now. Their golden age, led by David and Solomon, were, was squarely behind them. Instead of being at the head like they were promised, they perpetually felt like they were the tail of the world. They looked for a future deliverance when Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians would no longer overrun their land. They had many peaks, like we see on the hedonometer. They had many peaks, like little tiny ones throughout their lives. They had moments of joy, celebration, but it was always quickly followed by devastation and disappointment. And so the prophet Isaiah steps into that, that context and speaks to that. He's a voice that God raises up to give the nation a verbal chastening for their disobedience, but also promises a future flourishing when they return to covenant faithfulness. You're familiar, if you grew up in church, with, with what I'm about to read, and it was in the Advent reading that, that the McCarty's read today. This is what Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 promises. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, we too quickly rush to a spiritual implication. Glory to God, there is a Prince of Peace coming to help me unmess up my life. And yet, for Israel, this was a real hope. They had conquering invaders in their capital, or about to be, at the time of Isaiah, he's prophesying that this is gonna happen. They were looking forward to a time where there was an actual flesh and blood king that was sent to them by God, anointed and favored to bring about peace and wholeness to their land, their country, their culture, their religion, their economy, all throughout. So let's not rush too quickly to assign a spiritual meaning to an Old Testament promise. Let's actually sit with them in the hope that there is someone coming. And that's what Advent means. It means coming. It means coming. And so we sit ourselves in this in-between of Jesus having come, but him who is to come. We live in what some theologians call the already but not yet. 
You feel that, don't you? I'm already, I'm already favored by God, but I have not yet fully grabbed a hold of that because I'm still me. On Monday and Tuesday, I still show up. And church, I feel good. God's alive. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's roaring. And then Monday, TPS reports, like, seriously? Seriously, okay, all right, all right. We feel this already and not yet. So the promised peace, though, is what we all want. This, this, this coming of this king to set things right, to rule with righteousness and justice and goodness and wisdom. The heart of David, the wisdom of Solomon, we want that. We want leaders that we can follow like that. We want to be people like that. Yet, when we speak of peace, it's important to describe what exactly we mean by peace. Peace, as we often understand it, is an absence of conflict. That's a good thing. Peace is either the ceasefire between warring nations or a ceasefire between warring siblings. We want that. Sarah's preaching at True Church today, one of our partner churches. She's at 8.30, she's like, well, bye. And I have both boys. And you know, like every Sunday, your kids act perfectly, right? (laughs) my kids are great though they kind of know the Sunday morning routine of like this is our lane we're going to stay here and if we stay in this lane we get treats after church that's that's Sunday morning for us we did pretty good pretty good so anyway but I still had two boys I had to dress and you know comb their hair and go nope you're not wearing that get back in there you know all that stuff but we want peace I want peace Jesus in my house okay so An absence of conflict, though, isn't an exhaustive definition when the scripture uses the word peace. Peace, in Hebrew, is the word shalom. Shalom. We, we, if you, again, grew up in church, maybe maybe you know this. Shalom has in its definition the, the absence of peace there, but it's also, it means complete or whole or fulfilled. So when Isaiah is talking about a prince of peace, he's talking about so a leader, a Messiah, someone who will come and complete the promise to their nation, who will complete and bring wholeness to their economy and their religious systems and, and all their politics. And yes, even down into the family and individual people that live in that country. The Prince of Peace is more than just kicking out an invading army. It's a completeness to, to what God promised to that nation. So as we gain clarity on what scripture's concept of shalom is, it puts us in a better position to understand this promised prince of peace. Say that three times fast. So in the gospels, we read these familiar birth stories. And, and really, I think we should read them more than just in the Christmas season. These are the, the great mysteries of the incarnation where God fit into a human body and not just in a human body, but a baby. I mean, have, have you ever put like, like an acorn into a pot and, and grown it as a science experiment, right? At some point, that, that oak tree breaks the pot. And yet, somehow, in the, the divine like interaction between God and, and a human frame, the frame expanded, and God didn't burst the seams of that body. Like, we will, we will be inquiring into the incarnation when God became flesh and dwelt among us for all of eternity. It's amazing to think about, don't you think? Okay, so 
we are, uh, we're going to be in Luke 2, if you want to open your, your Bibles there or read it on the screen behind me. So we're, we're familiar, but we have to become unfamiliar, maybe to some degree, maybe deconstruct a little bit of our understanding and, and how we remember the Christmas story. So we're familiar with Luke 2. Joseph is engaged to Mary. And they travel back to his ancestral home in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had ordered a census probably so he could tax everyone. He wanted to make sure he could get a good count so all those dollars came rolling into the treasury. It was a difficult journey for sure, most obviously because Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And in this this, um, this just divine interaction of of human and and God. Uh, Mary gives birth to Jesus. As I mentioned, the the birth story really isn't maybe exactly how we remembered it, but it still stands that Mary gives birth to to the baby. They're put up maybe in a a family home or or some sort of stable attached to a home. And, And heaven is rejoicing that this plan has come to fruition. And so we read in Luke 2, chapter, or verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem, uh, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Isn't that fascinating that the Lord's glory shows up and it freaks people out? I kind of love that, honestly. Like, like God is gentle. He's absolutely kind and gentle and patient. But there are times where heaven bursts open and people flip their lids. And God goes, yeah, I gotcha. Surprise, right? <laughs> they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Oh, yeah, you could have done that a million different ways if you wanted them not to be afraid of that, by the way. But don't be afraid. I bring you. Good news, I bring you the gospel of great joy that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So the shepherds, like I said, going around about their everyday business, they're, you know, they're on, on uh, thir- third shift, watching their flocks, doing their due diligence in Bethlehem. This is good, good, excuse me, good news of great joy. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the one who will sit on his ancestral father David's throne and bring about justice and righteousness and the sign that this is the thing that has been promised to, that is that these shepherds are going to find in Bethlehem a baby uh, newly born. And it continues, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So <laughs> you have to get this though. The writer Luke is basically trolling the Caesars here. When Caesar Augustus was born... And it, it was announced all throughout the Roman Empire. They sent messengers to the four corners of the empire. And it, that was called good news being proclaimed to the Roman people. And so Luke is saying, oh, 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 you had messengers on horseback. Oh, that's cute. It's really nice. This king split the heaven open with rejoicing. Did you, did you do that, by the way? Okay, so it was... It was okay news, it wasn't good news, right? Like this is good news, yours was just, maybe that was just news for, for your, your empire. This is good news that will cause great joy to all the people of all the world, right? Because an angel showed up, so here's the deal. An angel showed up 
And then behind the angel was the host of heaven. So we know we have angels and we have seraphim and we have cherubim. And those are weird things. Like we read Ezekiel and and Revelation and, and those are just weird creatures. And then there's the host. We don't even know what those look like. But, but they cause people to freak out when they show up. And Luke is saying, all the weirdos, all, all of the ones in God's great glory showed up to proclaim this good news. Did, did, you, did you have that? No? Okay. Well, we'll move on then. So when the, angels, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was laying in the manger. When they had been seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So I want to back up just for a moment, and I want to read verse 14 in the New King James Version. You might be more familiar with some of the older translations with this particular verse, and I think this is the whole reason and purpose of this point of the narrative. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, towards mankind. This is the purpose statement of why the angels and the hosts showed up to share with the shepherds. There's a reason that Jesus is coming to the earth. This is the good news. The good news is this. Glory to God in the highest heaven. Glory to God. There's a a restoration of worship that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will bring about where he reveals the heart of God, of the Father to the people and restores that relationship. Glory to God in, uh, in the highest heavens and on earth. Here's the purpose of Jesus. Peace and goodwill. Shalom and God's goodness, his favor resting on everyone on the earth. Jesus came to bring good news. And more than that, Jesus is the good news because he restores the hearts, like like Sarah read last week, restores the hearts of the people to the Father. And he brings God's favor to the people. He releases it, he extends it, he gifts it to us, okay? So who are the favored ones? Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke says, the picture of a person uh, of God's favor was a Jewish way of saying that someone was numbered among God's chosen people. This remark makes it clear that salvation and its fullness are not automatic for everyone. So everyone is welcome to be the recipient of God's favor. Everyone is welcomed into his family, but he bestows it upon those that respond, that turn to him for their peace, for their salvation, right? So upon his, those whose his favor rests are those who have turned to him fully with their hearts and with their lives. They are the recipients of God's favor. So I... Uh, I wanna talk about the ways that shalom manifests itself in our life. I have, I have three dimensions. I think there, you could make a case that there are probably more if you wanna be more thorough, but I have at least three that I wanna talk about. How does God's peace show up in our lives? If this is good news that brings great joy to all the people, how do I experience it for me, for my family, right? So first, we have upward peace. As I just mentioned, 
the, the favor that is, is extended is extended to those that God welcomes and those that respond to his grace. We have peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus because we're unable to achieve forgiveness and reconciliation on our own, right? Okay, so Jesus came as a baby and gave his life as an adult so we could be in God's family, so we could be in relationship and be fully reconciled. We have peace first, and I think you could argue that most importantly, or at least the priority, what goes first is peace with God. If you want peace in your life, that is only attainable by peace with God first, responding to that invitation, okay? This is what's alluded to in the Gospel of Matthew in another birth story that we're familiar with if you, if you grew up in church. If you don't, if you didn't grow up in church, we are so glad you're here. We, we uh, uh, in a way, I kind of envy you. If this is the first time maybe that you're hearing the birth story of Jesus, this is new and fresh and exciting, even if it's a little weird or crazy and you're wondering, can I really truly believe this? We are grateful that you're here giving us the chance, if you're online watching this, giving us the chance to, 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 to bring this in a fresh and new way to you, okay? So Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 20 says this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because uh, Jesus, his name actually means Yahweh saves or God saves or salvation. So the angel is tying the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. You only need someone to save you if you can't save yourselves. And that is the good news, of, uh, good news of Jesus, is that he is the one who saves. He does the things that we are not able to do on our own. Peace with God also means that we can cease striving to find that elusive place of peace and rest. We can stop trying to earn God's acceptance or affection. It's available to us as a gift. We simply need to receive. So, second, secondly, the second dimension of peace is inward peace. When the relationship to God is changed, we receive a new identity. Instead of being, him being a, a harsh taskmaster, and instead of us seeing God as someone to always be, who is hard to please and always demanding more, and it's never enough to, to measure up to what he wants, we see him as a loving father. And instead of us being worthless and filthy, we are welcomed as beloved sons and daughters. That brings peace when we can stop our striving and know that we don't have to measure up to an expectation because Jesus has measured up to that expectation for us. We can't underestimate the amount of healing that this brings to our souls. When you cease from striving and enter into God's peace, there is so much inner healing and inner peace you attain. We must realize that as Mike Bickle says, we are not Sinners who struggle to love God. But our new identity is that we are lovers of God who sometimes struggle with sin. And we can't underestimate at the same time the damage that the fall and our disobedience has done to us. This isn't a, 
snap of the fingers and you're just a completely new person in every dimension of who you are. No, this actually takes a lifetime of undoing as we pursue Jesus, as we give him hard yes, as we surrender to his plan and his purpose. There's more healing that happens. Anyone in this life that has told you that they have arrived, just maybe don't know themselves too well. You should ask their spouse, maybe anonymously to get a real answer, okay? The fall, this connection from God has done tremendous harm but God is in the business of cleaning up the inside of us. Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, says this. The process of spiritual shaping is a primal reality of the human existence. Everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. Every thought we hold, every decision we make, every action we take, every emotion we allow to shape our behavior, every response we make to the world around us, every relationship we enter into, every reaction we have toward the things that surround us and impinge upon our lives, all of these things little by little are shaping us into some kind of being. We bring shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. Destructive not only to ourselves, but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. And this, this segues into our last dimension of peace. Because if we stop here at inward peace, and this is what most people are chasing, the concern is that we underappreciate the peace that God extends to us and his work to pull that off. And we over-desire inner peace, so we're always looking for the next thing that will bring shalom. And we're always chasing something because we can never fully realize it. And then we stop there. If we stop at inner peace, just feeling like I'm just trying to get my stuff figured out and I'm just trying to find some rest and, and do some mindfulness exercises and be good, then what we've done is we've settled for a therapeutic gospel, not a transformative gospel. A therapeutic gospel that only worries about internally, like this is important, but if it stops here, it stops short of the transforming effect of God's grace that he extends to all of us through his spirit. So the third dimension is outward. The wholeness of shalom will always overflow to those around us. The relationships we have with friends and neighbors and coworkers, and especially those in close contact, our family, our spouse, our kids, and so forth. Can we say that shalom has taken root in us if the community around us stays the same? Is it fair to say we've really felt God's shalom if everything around us doesn't get touched by God's peace? Doesn't the good news of Jesus have something to say to troubled marriages, food and housing insecurity, crime and incarceration, abuse and neglect? Does not the gospel affect those things too? Do we expect people to ever want to know this Jesus we preach? if the peace we carry never makes it out into the streets of our city to affect the lives of those we encounter. One big problem is that in our brain's development, we've, we tend to categorize people as like and unlike us. Those people are like us, those people are unlike us. We, we're conditioned developmentally to look the, on the horizon for threats. And we recognize people that are like us. My kids are cute, they look like me. Okay, they're not threats. That stranger down the street that dresses differently, talks differently, votes differently, they're unlike me, they're a threat. 
okay? So we, by our biology, are looking to make enemies out of people for the sake of self-preservation. And it's difficult to extend shalom to those we have already, often subconsciously, subconsciously predetermined are different and against us. So we have to be on guard. That's part of our spiritual formation is to quit othering people and start aliking people. So we're reminded by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two, verse two, remember, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, extended, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our shalom who has made the two groups, the alike and the not alike, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Remember, you were once not like God in in that metaphorical sense. You were once disconnected and God still went after you. You were lost, left to yourself. And Christ pursued you and included you. Though you were enemies on that level, God still loved you and gave his life for you so that you could be a part of his family. Dr. Brian Loritz tells a story of local tribunals that were set up in post-apartheid South Africa. And they were set up so that victims could seek justice and the country could begin to heal. And one story of the process, as I read it, as I heard it, really stands above the rest. After apartheid ended in South Africa, a white police officer named Mr. Vanderbeek was put on trial. The court found that he had come to a woman's home, shot her son at Point Blank Range, and then burned the young man's body on a fire while he and his officers partied nearby. The woman's husband was killed by the same men, and his body was also burned. So a member of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission turned to her and asked, so what do you want? How should justice be done for this man? I want three things, the woman said confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly for Mr. Vanderbeek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have. And finally, I would like Mr. Vanderbeek to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbeek in my arms, embrace him, let him know that he is truly forgiven. So the message of Advent reminds us that finding peace doesn't mean that there won't be pain and suffering in our lives. It doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out exactly like we expected it to. But what it does mean is that God will meet you in those moments with his presence And you could be the very instrument of his peace, of his shalom, 
that brings righteousness, brings justice, brings true healing to the world around us. So when God moved into the neighborhood once and for all, we were told there's no, no injustice too big, there's no evil that's too dark to be enlightened by the glory of God. So I'm gonna have the worship team join me. And the question then becomes, so what do we do? How can we access this peace? And how can we be instruments of God to those around us? So why don't you stand with me? And I have just a question I want us to sit with. And this, this is a question that we, maybe you just need to have with you as we enter into the concluding time of worship. How can I welcome God's shalom and express it to those around me during Advent? Maybe for some of us here, it's finally surrendering our lives to, to Jesus. I would invite you to do that if you're here today and you would say, I'm not, I don't think I'm a Christian or I don't necessarily know where I'm at with God, but I know something needs to change. This, this is the day that God has brought you here. God has you listening or watching to invite you into his family to receive his peace. And maybe for some of us, it's, it's this turmoil. We know that there's, there's some unsettledness that we're wrestling with. There's maybe some trauma or brokenness that needs healing. Maybe for some of us, it's taking that next step to seek counseling, to seek therapy, or to even have, have a retreat or have, have some time away, a sabbatical where we could become aligned and centered on God. And, and for those of us that maybe have grown up in the church and you've heard this message over and over again, maybe God's finally asking you, those, those dreams I've put in your heart, those things that I've called you to aren't for you. Spiritual formation is for our neighbor. Peace that we carry is for our neighbor. And, and so maybe God's asking you to get involved, to step into what he's doing in the lives of the people around you. When you see the brokenness, when you see the, the things out of alignment with God's will, and you wonder who is gonna do something about this, maybe this is the day that God says, you're the one. So we have, we've been talking a bit about uh, really making room for God's presence. So if you guys, maybe if you want to play chord progression, we can just, I don't want to rush from this place. After talking about peace, and we just kind of rush to the next thing a lot of times in America. What if we just took a few minutes and invited God's presence here and sat with this question about, God, what, what am I to do with the gospel and with your peace, okay? So if you just get comfortable, if you wanna just bow your heads, sometimes um, a posture of worship helps engage. So if you, you can raise your hands or put them in front of you, maybe like you're receiving a gift, the presence is a present. The presence is God's presence among us. And one of the marks of his presence really is peace. So let's wait for a moment and listen to him speak. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here with us. And sometimes for us, just whispering a phrase like, God, send your peace can help us. So God, send your peace. If you want to say it out loud or say it quietly in your heart, God, send your peace, send your shalom.
love you. Send your peace. Send your presence here. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.